Tonight I'd like, I'd like to uh, speak about the Four Noble Truths. Sometimes it's easy to forget what we're doing here after this many days of working, working in ourselves. So I'd like to remind us what we're doing. Most importantly, what we're doing here is we're engaging in a process of waking up. All of us are engaging in this process of awakening. And what are we awakening to? Well, first we're awakening to the present moment. It doesn't take long when you begin to watch and observe the mind. It doesn't take long to begin to see just how much time we spend you know, getting caught up in thoughts of the past and getting caught up in thoughts of the, of the future. And how difficult it is to rest in the present. You know, even if you're working very hard, you know, coming back to the breath or just coming back to an awareness of what you're experiencing, which is what we're doing now. Being aware of the present moment. And so this practice that we're engaged in is learning how to wake up to what our experience is in the present moment, what our actual experience is. We're also awakening to other possibilities of relating to our experience. And that's fundamental to this particular practice. We can have lots of different experiences coming and going. And so much of the learning takes place, so much of this waking up process takes place when we begin to see you know, how we're relating to our experiences. And when we begin to let go of how we usually relate to those experiences. We can begin to open up to the new when we begin to practice awareness. You know, rather than relying on habit, rather than going through life you know, in a very habitual, kind of conditioned way, which is really not freedom. It's hard to transform oneself when you're caught up in habit. We all know that when we're caught up in all our conditioned reactions from the past, we meet the present through our conditioning. And that, of course, is not freedom. We're an awakening to an inner clarity. And this inner clarity allows us to see our true nature. So much confusion in the mind about who we are. What are we? Where are we going? What's the purpose of life? And practice allows us, in a very gradual way, to begin to see what our true nature is. Can we touch what's true within us, within our own experience? Below the surface of agitation and worry. We're learning to see things as they are. It's really that simple. The entire practice is really learning to see things as they are and then tasting the fruit of that clarity. You know, vipassana, insight meditation, means to see things as they are. You know, it's not about having a particular experience, but it's about seeing your experience. That's such a difficult lesson. But we're learning it. Finally, what we're awakening to. This is a necessary insight. And it definitely comes gradually. Sometimes it comes a little more suddenly. It's an opening. We see something clearly. 
There's a letting go that happens. But what we're awakening to is what brings peace. What brings peace? Discovering if there's a happiness that's unconditioned, that's lasting. It doesn't depend on the changing tides. The Buddha was known as the Awakened One. That's what the Buddha means, the Awakened One. And after the Buddha's awakening, or his enlightenment, in his first first discourse, gave his first discourse to to five uh, monks that he'd been training with, ascetics that he'd been training with, who initially rejected him. You know, they, they practiced with him and uh, did all these ascetic practices with him. And finally, he discovered on his own that it was the middle path. It wasn't uh, self-punishment. That wasn't the way to go. It wasn't self-punishment. It wasn't indulgence in the senses. But it was the middle path. And so he actually started taking better care of himself. And they saw that as a weakness. They saw him. They thought he was copping out from the path. But he had the confidence to pursue his own way. And when he did sit sit under the Bodhi tree and get enlightened, he discovered something and he shared that with these five ascetics. Initially, they were quite skeptical when they first saw him, coming from a distance. They were kind of getting ready to kind of give him a hard time. But the closer he got, uh, the more they could feel that there was something quite special. There was something different in his manner. And so he sat down and he gave them really in many ways, the most important teachings. In fact, all the Buddhist teachings, all the teachings that you hear up here, all the Buddhist teachings that you read about, hear about, see in video now, wherever, wherever it's coming from, it's coming from this, really. It really is coming from this. Uh, and that is what he discovered, the insights that he had was the Four Noble Truths, discovering the Four Noble Truths. The first noble truth is the noble truth of suffering. Second noble truth is the origin, a cause of suffering. Third noble truth is cessation, cessation of suffering. And the fourth is the path to cessation, the path to liberation. The Buddha was very, very focused in his life, extremely present and extremely practical. Very, very practical. In fact, what, it, what, it said, what he said was he was essentially interested in only two things. And in some ways, I think of it as only one thing. But they say he was interested, he said he was interested in only two things, and that is suffering and the end of suffering. Suffering in the end of suffering. So looking at the first noble truth of suffering. Suffering in Pali, the language that the Buddha's teachings were recorded, language of Pali, another way of describing suffering is dukkha. There's many different layers, many different meanings depending on the context. Uh, but some of the meanings of dukkha, of suffering, are in, in, incapable of satisfying, there's unhappiness, 
dukkha. Separation and disconnection. We all know that. There's a source of unhappiness, a source of suffering, a feeling of incom- uh, incompleteness. You know, it's that movement, that, that wanting things that we don't have, not wanting things that we do have. It's an overall sense of discontent. Suffering, discontent. And there are endless forms, endless forms. At least it seems endless to me. Uh, all you have to do is you know, read the Times. Read the Times this morning. I kind of squeezed it in uh, during one of, after breakfast, I think. And uh, there are endless forms of suffering continuing to go on out there. There's also a lot of suffering going on in our own self, in our own minds. And certainly in, in a uh, big part of retreat life, um, this may be kind of disappointing, uh, but a big part of retreat life is really discovering that, uh, discovering the fact that, you know, we do suffer quite a bit. Um, here we come to a place that really is quite beautiful. Um, it's not that uncomfortable. Um, you know, most of our needs are being, sort of basic needs anyways, are being taken care of. And yet, you know, the act of sitting with yourself, you know, without the usual escapes or uh, stimulation, you know, that, that space, in a sense, uh, you know, so much can come up in that space, loneliness, sadness, a longing to get back to home. And when you were home, you were longing to come back to this retreat or coming to this retreat for the first time. You know, and, and that's dukkha. You know, that's dukkha. That's not liking where you are. And if you start looking at your experience, you know, that's what you discover over and over again, is how much we don't like what our experience is and how we want something else. It's tremendously powerful within us. To me, this realization, this recognition of suffering is very, very important. You know, and, and I understand why the Buddha begins. You know, the first noble truth is suffering. He doesn't start with cessation of suffering. Again, that's the genius of the Buddha. He starts with where we are, with the way things are now, in the untrained mind, how we live our lives. You know, and you can be... A, Incredibly wealthy, incredibly comfortable, and incredibly poor. It really doesn't matter. There's, there's so many different forms of suffering. People are subject to so many different forms uh, of suffering that, it, from my perspective, you know, it's a common bond that we share. Just to recognize, to acknowledge that suffering is going on. But of course it's not enough. You know, the first noble truth is more. Understanding the first noble truth is more than just recognizing that there's suffering. Uh, because, you know, that's not enough, just knowing that you're suffering. What we need to do is we need to be able to understand that suffering. We need to be able to understand it. Not intellectually. Not so much like analyzing it or necessarily even figuring it out. But we need to be able to learn to open to it. Learning how to open to it fully without judging it. Without reacting against it. Without getting caught or overwhelmed by it. Without denying that it's there. Without suppressing it but simply learning to open and be with your experience as it is. It's not always suffering. 
but there's a lot of it. And when you sit with yourself, that's what we discover. You know, especially in the first few days of a retreat, I think the first noble truth becomes really apparent quick. Uh, You know, it might not become apparent uh, when this retreat started Saturday night, but by late Sunday morning, you know, you kind of know you're in for a bit of a ride. You know, it's not necessarily going to be smooth sailing. And the fact is what we're doing is we're waking up. We're waking up to, to what our condition is. And a lot of meditation, a lot of practice is just about that. It's about discovering where we are. You know, sometimes when we come to retreat, we discover we're exhausted. You know, we're sitting there incredibly sleepy. Or all of a sudden we discover that there's all this tension in the body. And that tension isn't necessarily there because you've been sitting. It's there because you're beginning to pay attention to your experience. Beginning to understand how we accumulate suffering within the body. And again, the training, of course, learning this first noble truth is about opening to our experience. Opening to that suffering. So that we can learn from it. So that we can understand it. And that's a fundamentally different way of relating to suffering. Of course, that's why it takes so much patience and effort. Because it's so different than our conditioning. It's so different from what we've learned about how we're supposed to relate to suffering. And what we've learned is that it's a bad thing to suffer. And that we should get rid of it. We should fix it. We need to do something about it. We can't admit it. There's shame in it. Everybody's suffering, but yet we still carry a lot of shame around about it. You know, and that's our conditioning. And so beginning to understand this first noble truth takes a certain degree of training. It takes training the mind, strengthening the heart, so that we can be with our experience, so that we can be with whatever arises, and not reinforce the suffering. Because when we react against suffering, when we sit back and judge ourselves, because we're experiencing pain, or that we feel the deep discontent or loneliness or sadness, whatever might be coming up, in a particular city. If we sit back there with judgment about it, like this isn't supposed to be happening to me, I'm meditating. I've spent a lot of money, I've worked really hard, and something else should be happening. You know, I shouldn't just be sitting here with a really painful body and feeling really restless. Something else should be happening. You know, when we sit there with that mind, that mind is suffering. And it's actually oftentimes more suffering than what we're actually feeling in the body. No, it's more suffering than the restlessness that we're experiencing because the judgment is very harsh and painful. The restlessness is what it is. Judgments are often, of course, based on a lot of expectations about it not being that way. And, of course, we, I talked about that, the suffering of expectation. And that's exactly what it is. It's, it's we're placing an expectation on our experience rather than learning how to relax and meet the present moment and meet our experience in an open-hearted way. Fortunately, we don't have to relate to our suffering that way. We can actually transform our relationship to this first truth, this recognition, this opening to suffering. 
And the way we do that, from my perspective anyways, is what we're doing right here, right now. The practice that we're doing. And that, of course, is the practice of mindfulness. To me, each moment that you wake up to the present moment, that you open, that you just know breathing is happening, hearing is happening, pain in the body is happening, thoughts are happening. That moment, even if it's just one moment, of just simple non-judgmental attention to your experience. It's before the criticisms kick in. Before that desire to get rid of that painful experience arises. Just that knowing of the experience. That has a tremendous power. Because what that does is it begins to work on our conditioned reactions to pain. It begins to work on our conditioned reactions to suffering. In fact, the fruit of mindfulness is that it leads to deconditioning. It leads to deconditioning. It changes, it transforms our conditioning. It creates space in the mind. It allows for what our experience is. And that part of our experience is allows us to suffer. You know, we don't allow ourselves to suffer in some ways. We get overwhelmed by suffering, certainly, but we don't, we don't open to it. And allowing suffering doesn't mean that you're resigned to it. Because resignation is simply just another reaction to suffering. But when we train ourselves instead to open to it, we're beginning to open to new possibilities of relating to the suffering. In fact, one Zen teacher describes suffering as a gateway to liberation. Gateway to liberation. Mostly we don't really relate uh, that way uh, to our suffering. But to me that's a very profound statement. Reflect on that a little bit. A gateway to liberation. In other words, we can transform, we can use our experience by opening up to it, to learn, to cultivate wisdom, to cultivate compassion, to lead to freedom. But we have to, of course, be willing to be with ourselves. So much of a retreat is is exactly that. It's learning how to be with yourself. You know, we have the group support, but we're also, you know, walking our own path. You know, we're also doing our own work, and people are working really hard. When we train ourselves to begin to open to suffering, the truth of suffering, we begin to see it more clearly. And in that process of seeing, we begin to see for ourselves what causes our suffering. See, the Buddha didn't stop just with there is suffering. But as we begin to open to suffering, that's the advantage of looking at it and opening to it rather than moving away from it. Because then we can begin to see it. And when we, be- and when we begin to investigate it through open attention, you know, staying with it if it's predominant, being with it, noticing its characteristics, whatever that expression of suffering is, when we begin to take a look at our experience, we begin to understand the nature, what causes 
a suffering? What's underneath it? You know, what's driving the suffering? What the Buddha discovered is insight. And it really is his insight. So you really have to kind of check this one out for yourself. What he discovered was that the cause of our suffering is not seeing clearly. Not seeing clearly. Ignorance. By not being present, we live out of harmony. You know, we live out of harmony with nature. And all of us know this. When we're caught up and preoccupied, when we're lost in that world of thought, when we're disconnected, we're living out of harmony with nature. You know, we often do unskillful things you know, when we're disconnected, when we're preoccupied, when we're not present. And when we're disconnected from the way things are, we tend to misunderstand and not see clearly what leads to peace, what's going to bring us happiness. We don't see it. We're not open to it. And the way that gets expressed, you know, there's not seeing what brings happiness, what brings peace is that we attach to certain things. We attach with the hope, with the real futile hope, really, that they're going to bring happiness. And what we attach to is our desires. We attach to our desires. And the Buddha described these three kinds of attachments that cause suffering. And three kinds of attachments are greed, the attachment to pleasant, aversion, or Hatred, that's wanting to get rid of pain, pushing it away. And delusion, which is kind of this disconnect from your experience. Sometimes people misunderstand the second noble truth. Sometimes people think, well, it's desire that's causing suffering. It's a really common misconception that it's, if you want something, then you must be suffering want something, you must be suffering. In other words, if you want soup for lunch, you're sitting and you're sitting in the morning and you start getting hungry and, and you realize, boy, it would be nice to have soup. I like soup. I was happy they had soup today. Uh, so wanting that soup, there's something wrong with that, say. You know, we, it sounds odd, but actually some people do have a lot of judgments about their wanting. Uh, it's not the wanting the soup that causes suffering. It's the attachment to the soup or the attachment to the desire for the soup. In other words, if you want soup, that's fine. It sounds fine. But what happens if you get up there and it's not there? You know, what happens if you saw it on the board with those vegetable soup and then you get there and it's not there? A little bit of suffering anyway. <laughs> Maybe big, big amount of suffering given how much energy we put into lunch. Uh, Even if you do get your soup, 
eventually you're going to be done with your soup. And if somehow you had the misunderstanding that that soup was going to make you happy, well, by quarter to one, <laughs> you've got the insight that it didn't bring lasting happiness because you're looking for something else. You know, that walk that you're going to do or whatever we imagine is going to bring us lasting happiness. So it's really the delusion about desires. You know, it's, it's the delusion about experiences, sensations that create our suffering. It's not wanting. Uh, again, you know, wanting seems to me quite natural. A good example is wanting a peaceful retreat. My guess is most people came wanting a peaceful retreat. You know, I mean, I think that would be, you know, I, paid, I would want a peaceful, I want a peaceful retreat when I go, go on. I don't want it to be, you know, tumultuous and painful and agonizing and all that stuff. Um, I want it to be peaceful too. Um, but what happens when you get to a retreat and it just doesn't turn out to be so peaceful? Um, again, the wanting the peaceful is fine, but attaching to it is, a, is an incredible setup because it might be peaceful some of the time, but it's not going to be peaceful all the time. And when it's not peaceful, we're going to suffer if we're attached to it. Whereas if you want a peaceful retreat, but you're not attached to a peaceful retreat, you're just going into it, doing it. There's no suffering in that wanting a peaceful retreat. It's, it's reasonable to want a peaceful retreat. But really the suffering comes because the wanting gets expressed again through expectation. You know, the craving, the attachment. It's that we put demands on ourselves to have a peaceful retreat. And of course those demands then just create a lot of tension for us, and a lot of disappointment. Taking something you know, fundamental, not just to retreat life, but to everyday life. I think this can be a very, you know, strong attachment, which is, you know, wanting to be healthy. You know, wanting to be healthy. You know, to me, I, I, I know I want to be healthy, and I'm sure everybody in this room wants to be healthy. Fine. But what happens when we attach to it? You know, this winter, you know, a lot of people have gotten sick, and... You know, if we're attached to being healthy, what happens is when we get sick, there's the suffering of sickness, right? Of the pain and the discomfort that comes with the flu, and it can be pretty strong, definitely, the coughing and all that stuff. But oftentimes, the, the suffering is much greater depending on how we relate to it. In other words, if there's a total lack of acceptance of the suffering, of, of the sickness. You know, we don't like it, we don't think we should, uh, it's ruining our retreat. We can't practice. You know, we start laying all these trips on ourselves, a lot of guilt trips, whatever it might be, fear, whatever that might, whatever, however which way we're relating to it, we can begin to see that that really is the source of suffering. You know, that's the source of suffering. It's that attachment. And why it leads to suffering is because whatever we attach to, whatever we attach to, and this, this may not be that easy to to accept, but whatever we attach to, its nature is to change. Whatever, you know, whatever we encounter, you know, in our day-to-day -day interactions, you know, different sensations in the body, different sounds, different thoughts, emotions, different mental states uh, that come up in sitting, whether it's restless, whether they're things that we think are bad, or whether they're good states of mind, like peaceful, or feeling tranquil, or any of that, all the, all, the nature of all those experiences are, is that they're going to change. They're going to change. And there's no problem with that fact. 
And in fact, that change, just because they're changing doesn't mean that we have to suffer. You know, sometimes it's nice that certain experiences change. Other experiences we don't want to change. But it's how we relate to those changing experiences determines whether we suffer or not. If we can meet the changing experiences that we're going through here on retreat, and everybody has gone through thousands of experiences since you've been here, if we can begin to re- learn how to relate to each one of those experiences, just being present and aware, without attaching to any of those experiences, then we begin to taste what the Buddha described as the third noble truth. And that's cessation. That's letting go of our suffering. In other words, when we begin to get this insight that it's not about having one experience and holding on to it, but it's about the inner balance that comes about when we begin to observe our experience, when we wake up to the present moment. When we wake up to the present moment, what we discover is that our experiences are changing. If you wake up to a pleasure, whether it's a taste or a sight or a sound, if you just pay attention to it, you'll see that it changes. And that's fine. That's absolutely fine. No problem with that. But if we attach to it, again, it causes suffering. So when we begin to learn how to relate to these experiences differently, and what we're doing here is learning to meet our experiences with mindfulness, with attention. And again, that's a a radically different way of relating to your experience. That's all I can say. It's not what we've learned in the past. So, of course, it takes patience and training. It really takes training the mind to say, oh, wait a second. Don't get caught up. Just look. You know, you don't have to go after that. Just pay attention to what's happening now. Things don't have to change. Things don't have to get better. Let's just open to the way it is. We don't have to fix that problem right now. We can open to the energy. We can just open to what's happening now and just pay attention to it. And you'll see that that thought, that emotion is changing. You know, it may have a certain amount of energy, a certain life force that may be around for a while, but if you look closely at it, you'll still see that it's changing from one moment to the next. If you look at that knee pain that may have started second day and it's still here, if you look at it closely, though, you'll see that it's vibrating, it's tension, it's pulsating, it's changing. We're seeing the true nature. What seeing the true nature does for us, when we begin to see our experiences as they are, not as they should be or shouldn't be, but exactly as they are, we let go of a tremendous burden of having things be other than what they are. A tremendous burden of letting things go. You know, That letting go of having things be a certain way leads to relaxation. We begin to relax into the present moment. It doesn't take quite as, bit, as much work. You know, the work is the struggle with what's happening. That's what's creating the work and the tension, is the struggling with what's happening. When we, be, when we stop struggling with it, and instead just open to it, the mind begins to relax and trust. We begin to trust ourselves. You know, we begin to trust awareness. Rather than thinking we, that something is always wrong, that we need to always be looking outside of ourselves for happiness, 
we begin to see that happiness is right here, right now. And it can be discovered in this very present moment. It's possible to discover deep peace and happiness in the middle of an incredibly hard experience. You know, I've had experiences with people on their deathbed. And it's amazing, actually, sometimes, you know, just how much peace there is. It's not always that way. If people haven't practiced, haven't practiced awareness, then what you run into is a lot of fear. But I've known people who have worked with that energy of death, that difficulty, and learned that seeing that, that the body is changing, you know, relaxing behind that fact, seeing it as a natural process. It takes a lot of work. It's not an ideal. It's really about being in the present, taking a look. That begins a process of relaxation. We just begin to loosen up and relax. We start living in harmony with the way things are. It's wonderful, really. It's a freedom. It's an energy place when we can just live with the way things are. And again, it's not passive in the sense that you're stuck with the way things are. You don't have to be stuck where you are. We're stuck if we start reacting against it. That's what reinforces it. That's how we get stuck. But if we can just open to it, it will change in its own accord. It will heal. That mindfulness really heals a lot of stuff that's, that's within us. It, it heals, it transforms it through its power of non-judgment, through meeting and experience with love instead of criticism, instead of grasping or clinging. And so we begin to relax. You begin to let go of what the Buddha described as the torments of the heart. Let go of the torments of the heart. And the torments of the heart are these painful energies. Painful energies. And the energies are greed. Greed is painful, whether we recognize it or not. Hatred and delusion. They torment our heart. They keep us out of balance. They keep us looking outside of ourselves. They keep us confused. They cloud the mind. You know that uh, serene, clear forest pool? It's there. But there's clouds over it. So when we begin to relax into the present moment, when we develop an inner balance and non-reactivity, we settle deeper into consciousness. We begin to discover a silence that's within us that's below the level of commenting and judging and describing, we begin to taste the unconditioned within us. The Buddha described it as the unborn, the uncreated, that which doesn't arise and pass away. That which doesn't arise and pass away within us. The power, the peace. And of course, that turns out to be a much more reliable refuge, to say the least, than these transient experiences that we keep hooking onto out of our confusion. And it's really out of confusion. We don't have to judge ourselves for hooking on. But the hooking on does create the suffering. And touching the unborn, touching the uncreated, it's freeing. 
we develop real confidence in ourselves. We, d- we realize that we can move through life without being pushed around, without being overwhelmed. There's a confidence, a trust, that we can meet experience. I have about five minutes to describe the path. (laughs) Fortunately, you've been hearing a lot about the path already. It's not new information. We spoke about ethical, you know, precepts and ethical actions at the beginning of the retreat. And that's one of the uh, important aspects, you know, of living life in harmony with the way things are, is that when we don't go around harming ourselves or others, there are so many different ways that we do harm ourselves, uh, others through our speech, through our action, sometimes what we say, maybe sometimes what we don't say. Another important aspect, of course it's a noble eightfold path, it's the cessation. Another aspect of of this Eightfold Path uh, falls in the category of meditation, which is exactly what we're doing here, which is mental training. Training the mind. Training the mind to open. Training the mind to look for ourselves. You know, and we need, of course, to to make effort in meditation. We've talked a lot about that. And uh, this clear seeing, seeing the impermanent nature of your experiences, opening up to your suffering, learning to really see what is going on in the present moment. As all of us know, it it does require a certain amount of sustained attention. In other words, uh, you know, we can sometimes recognize something, but we don't understand it. We don't see it fully. And the reason we don't see it fully is because we don't see it in a sustained way. You know, we just catch glimpses of it. In fact, that's really how suffering works a lot, is that we can catch a glimpse of suffering, but because we can't see what's going on in our experience in a sustained way, it's difficult to learn from it. And so concentration allows us to drop deeper into the experience. It allows us to keep our attention more steady so that we can begin to see the arising and passing away of experience. You know, this whole retreat you know, this whole retreat is like a lab because all what we're doing here is, is developing this continuity of attention. And even if you think you're really spaced out, you're not nearly as spaced out as you usually are. I I guarantee it, everybody in this room is more mindful than when they first arrived. I would, I'd bet my life on it actually, that there have been more moments of mindfulness and awareness than there usually is. Part of waking up though is seeing the fact that there are so many gaps and that we do constantly get caught up. And of course that's seeing things as they are. But there are a lot less gaps, and I can feel it. I can tell. You know, I can tell in the round of interviews that we had today, and I can tell by sitting in the hall. You know, that when you first start sitting, you know, when we're up here, you know, it's like uh, watching a bunch of jumping beans in the first day. You know, it's the scratching, the this and this and that. You know, this and that, moving and you know, like stuff like this. And, and you know. Uh, we're doing a lot of stuff and we're not really being very mindful of it. 
uh, we're getting more mindful. You know, we're learning. We're paying attention. And that's because the mind is getting more concentrated. And we're also developing mindfulness, which, of course, is part of the meditation practice. You know, that ability to wake up over and over and over again. That's what reveals the path to us. That's what makes the path accessible to all of us in this room. You know, this path isn't just accessible to your neighbor. It may feel that way, but it isn't. It's accessible to you, too, because everybody in this room has an innate capacity to be mindful. It's, it's an intelligence that's within us already. The, it, the, the problem is, is we haven't used that muscle very much. You know, we, we really haven't used it enough. So it's quite weak at the beginning. And, you know, we come in here with lots of expectations and, of that we're going to be really mindful. And, you know, the fact is we haven't done it very much. Uh, so it's, it's not that strong. What's surprising to me is how strong it can get, how quickly. You know, the fact that we can be more mindful now than we were four days ago really says a lot about the practice. It says a lot about the effort that you're making, and it says a lot about mindfulness as a, as a, a powerful form of intelligence. You know, that intelligence that allows us to know what our experience is without criticizing or judging it. Just opens to it. Ah, hearing, sounds, rising, passing away. You know, ah, pain in the body. I don't like it, that's thought, but knowing it, that moment of knowing it, that's the moment of mindfulness. That creates the space and the potential for liberation. The third aspect is wisdom. So we have ethical action based on non-harm. And then we get into meditation, which is actualizing the, the path. It's not an ideal. It's not, like Larry said the other day, it's not a philosophy. You know, it's not a, a treatise that we've got up here and that we're, you know, taking apart and, you know, deciding, you know, making, critically and analyzing it. It's a practice. You know, it's a practice that leads to a certain kind of understanding. And it leads to wisdom. You know, it's not the wisdom of secondhand knowledge. In fact, the Buddha was very, very clear about that. That the wisdom that arises in this practice isn't secondhand knowledge. In fact, he warned against relying on secondhand knowledge. You, know, you wouldn't be here if you wanted to rely solely on secondhand knowledge. You might want to rely on it now. Uh, but you would not be here if you relied on secondhand knowledge. You came here because you wanted to practice or taste all the stuff that we've read about or heard about or you know, might imagine could happen. You know, and that's what we're doing. We're not relying on secondhand knowledge. We're taking a look for ourselves. It's a lot harder than sitting in your living room reading a book. You know, a cup of tea, feet up, radio in the background. <laughs> Sounds pretty good. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> We're trying something else here. We're going to take a look at ourselves. We're going to change our own minds. You know, other people have changed their minds. Other people have learned and grown and cultivated wisdom and compassion. In fact, it's been going on for lots of years, and in this particular practice or path, more than 2,500 years. And I'm sure it was going on before this path was even discovered. So wisdom is to be tasted quite directly. And where we taste wisdom, not too surprising, is in the present moment. 
Secondhand knowledge is not the presenthand moment. You know, if, second, if we read a book and then there's an opening and an understanding, then that can be wisdom. By just reading something and, and sort of taking it for granted or, or assuming that it's right, that's not seeing, that's not, that's not wisdom. You know, that's really delusion in a way. Uh, that's kind of a belief system or something. Wisdom comes out of seeing, you know, the wisdom of the Four Noble Truths, you know, comes out of really seeing your experience. You know, taking a look over and over again at your experience, seeing how we keep, you know, uh, like today, just, uh, I try, just before the talk, I, I try to get in to the bathroom, you know, that bathroom across from my door. Uh, well, about the last three times I've tried to get in, the door has been locked, somebody's been in there. And it's usually not used that much. And, you know, immediately, you know, I want to go to the bathroom and I want to get down here in time. And so I have a desire to go to the bathroom and to use the bathroom that's open because everybody else is using all the others. And I go to the door, ooh, it's locked. Grumble, grumble, complain. Oh, somebody's still in there. Who's using that? There's a sign that says staff. It better be a staff person, you know? <laughs> better not be one of you guys. <laughs> That's the attachment. That's the attachment. And you see, nothing wrong with that. But to see it matters. Because if I don't see it, if we don't see it, we suffer. We get build up resentment and anger, you know, and pretty soon you're rage, raging just because the bathroom door was locked. And that's, of course, foolish. It's just locked. You know, you just look around. And so I snuck into Larry's bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Snooped around. <laughs> Lots of strange things in there. <laughs> Much more interesting than my bathroom, I could tell you. So the point is, wisdom is not about having a formula that you can apply to life into every situation that you meet. It's really about uh, responding to life spontaneously, in the present, and, you know, seeing the nature of the experience, understanding the context in which you're operating. Uh, you know, uh, wisdom operates in many different levels. It's understanding the consequences of your, of your actions. You know, that's, actually, that's a big aspect of wisdom when you're out there relating in the world, is understanding that actions have consequences. You know, some actions have different consequences, some actions have other consequences. Some of them are not so good, others are, are beneficial. So seeing that relationship to what we do, that what we do does have an effect. We're interdependent. We influence and affect each other. That's wisdom. We're not separate. That's really where I want to uh, finish tonight. We're not separate, isolated beings. We're really not. Sometimes it may feel that way, but it's not true. You know, we have so much more in common than what we might focus on in terms of differences. Okay, let's uh, sit for a minute or two.
So thank you. And uh, keep practicing. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.